The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host, also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. I have with me in the studio Dr. Ryan McGraw, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Greenville Seminary. Ryan, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. I think we've met before. (laughs) Yeah, we know each other pretty well, I imagine. Uh, Dr. McGraw is not only a good friend of mine, he's also one of my professors. I've taken a couple classes with him, most lately Homiletics Practicum 1 last semester, where we went through some Old Testament texts, and he ripped me apart on my my poor preaching skills. Now he's very gracious in giving me constructive feedback. I have Dr. Piper for Practicum 2 this spring, and we'll see what the, the comparison and contrast is between these two Godly men, but Ryan um, is... I'm the nice one, by the way. Okay, so, so. Ryan's a good cop. <laughs> that leaves one option for Dr. P. So Ryan has joined me in the studio today for two uh, purposes. One is, and more, most importantly, to talk about uh, a recent publication of his in the Explorations and Reformed Confessional Theology series published by Reformation Heritage Books. It's a book called The Ark of Safety, Is There Salvation Outside of the Church? But the second reason, which you may be interested in, is that he joined me in the studio to wear matching shoes. We're both wearing um, t- uh, Converse sneakers today, since we're on a little break here at the seminary. I don't have to dress up and wear my my dress shoes, my penny loafers or whatever you think I might wear on a day-to-day basis, but we're wearing our casual footwear while we talk about um, the glorious doctrine of the church and that beloved Zion that God has, uh, has called us into, calling us out of the world. Ryan, as we look at this book, uh, one one thing that will strike uh, many of our listeners is that it's rather short, clocking in at just 113 pages, but reading through it, and it can be read through in a day or two if you go quickly, reading through it, what struck me is it is chocked full of information. What are the sources of this? What are you drawing from to put together this little book? Uh, a number of things. Partly, uh, one of the reasons for the size is I remember talking to Joel Beakey at, at one point, and uh, his advice was, he said, if he writes one 400-page book, then fewer people read it, but if he writes four 100-page books, then more people read them. And I think that tends to be true. Uh, so the size of the series and the books in the series make them much more accessible and easier for people to get into. I know at least from my part, I feel like if I have a stack of books and some of them are small, then I'm more encouraged to push through the small ones more quickly. But uh, the editors still want them to be substantive, and part of the purpose of this series in particular is to delve into some of the historical and biblical background of the statements in our Reformed Creeds and Confessions. Part of why that's important is we are many centuries removed, many things have happened philosophically and politically and religiously and and all kinds of other ways since the time, say, the Westminster Standards or Three Forms of Unity have been written. And so one of the aims that I've had, therefore, is to step back and say, first of all, what do our standards mean? What are they saying? And second of all, are the statements biblical? And then last of all, once we've gotten through the first two, uh, what do we do with it? Is it practical? How does it apply to the Christian life and touch us personally? 
And so in terms of the, the goal of the series, I'm excited about what these men are doing in editing this series. Uh, what's gone into this is, is a great number of things. In a certain sense, this little book condenses a good part of what I teach in the ecclesiology course here at Greenville Seminary, and it's aiming at a broader audience and a more accessible way, I hope. Um, so the number of sources are quite vast in terms of everything from uh, Turretin to, uh, to Bavink to some modern authors to even some ancient ones and everything in between, but ultimately seeking to show from Scripture why the doctrine of the Church is important and very narrowly and specifically why the visible Church, as we call it in particular, is ordinarily necessary for salvation, and that's where the theme comes from Westminster Confession 25, and that's the phrase this book is explaining. So I'll read that phrase. It's from the second paragraph of that chapter on the Church in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and this is a statement, quote, "...the visible Church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion, and of their children." and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And you focus primarily on that last assertion in the sentence, that outside of the visible church there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. What questions uh, might this raise for us as we read through the Westminster Confession of Faith, and um, if we're reading through it this year, Chapter 25 is a long way off on a yearly plan, but if you read through it every month or every quarter, you, you get through it pretty frequently, and you come across that line, uh, and you might have questions pop into your head. In terms of the book, what questions are you addressing? Well, the phrase itself that outside of the Church there is no salvation is an ancient one that comes probably from Cyprian in around the 4th century, um, and the, the phrase is stuck. And so in one form or another, it's come into theology for over a thousand years. And so, like it or not, it's here to stay. What the Westminster Confession is doing is developing the phrase in a certain direction. So the subtitle of the book is, Is the Church Necessary for Salvation? Uh, is there salvation outside of the church? That is going to raise questions in and of itself. Some people will bristle and say, well, all that's necessary for salvation is I need to be born again, I need to have faith in Jesus Christ, and of course, uh, ultimately, that's, that's true. We must be born again. We must know the right God in the right way. We must know the only true God, Jesus Christ, to be sent, um, and, and only the Spirit can open our hearts to receive Christ and to know the Father. And yet, um, ordinarily, the Lord calls people to saving faith through the church. Uh, there is one example of the thief on the cross being brought to salvation apart from joining the visible church, uh, but he is the rare exception in the Bible, not the norm. And when we've gotten to a stage in our history where people act as though being outside of the church and having me and my Bible, being born again, having the Spirit, believing in Jesus, is now the norm whether or not I'm part of the church. We have to ask what's happened and how have we gotten where we are. Uh, historically, I think what Westminster's doing is pastorally wise 
because they are saying in what we call the invisible church, which consists of uh, either the whole number of the elect and some definitions of it, or those who have simply been born again, united to Jesus Christ, we must absolutely be part of that church if we would be saved. Uh, because we're not simply saved as individuals, but as the body of Christ, the family of God, the temple of the Spirit. Uh, but in terms of the visible church, ordinarily, the Lord uses the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, particularly baptism in this case, to bring people uh, into communion with Jesus Christ. In other words, it's through the church and in the church that we meet Christ and we hear Christ and we're saved together as the body of Christ. And so ordinarily, uh, membership in the visible church is necessary. You know, I, I dug into, uh, here at the beginning of the year, I'm reading through the Bible like so many people, and this year I'm, I'm crawling through the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament um, from cover to cover for the first time is, is really my goal. So two chapters in Hebrew, one chapter in Greek every day is, is what I'm aiming for. Um, and I just read through, I'm a little bit ahead, and I just read through the flood narrative at the very beginning of Genesis, Genesis 6 through 8, so I'm going into Genesis 9 now. What really struck me is God over and over again talks about the ark. You see that word showing up over and over again, and because, you know, I'm not that familiar with a lot of vocabulary, I have to look down at the glossary at the foot of my reader's Hebrew Bible, and I see, oh yeah, that's ark, okay. And by the end of the three chapters, I get it. I, I know that word means the ark. And who's in the ark? It's never just Noah. It's not even Noah and his family, but God delineates it almost every single time. The scripture says Noah and his wife and his sons and the women of his sons or his son's wives. And so you have these people in this ark of safety being saved together in that corporate aspect, even in a temporal salvation, which right. ultimately will result in, for, for many of them, in their seed and eternal salvation. So um, you argue that when we're talking about the visible church, uh, you argue that the visible church is ordinarily necessary in two ways. And so then you dig into what the Westminster Divines are saying. Um, and before we rush into what those two ways are, because I think that's really interesting, can you explain to us what you mean by the visible church and how that would contrast then with, I guess, the invisible church? Yeah, the distinction between the visible and invisible church, as well as the relationship between them, uh, is something that in some circles has fallen out of favor, but I think is absolutely essential pastorally and biblically for understanding uh, the purpose of what this book is, is getting at. Um, there is one church with different aspects or facets. So when we speak of visible and invisible, we don't mean two churches, the real church versus the false church, but we mean the church in its internal essence and the church in its outward manifestation. And internally, the invisible church consists ultimately of God's elect. They either have been or shall be called to faith in Jesus Christ and they'll be born again in order to have faith in Jesus Christ. They will persevere to glory. They are the inhabitants of heaven now and in the future. And we're looking forward to the day when that whole number of God's elect are gathered together in one family, in one body from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now, there are some living who are truly united to Jesus Christ, 
who are truly born of the Spirit and truly have God as their Father and are looking forward to joining in the chorus of praise with that completed body of Christ at the last day. In the present state of the church, there are also those who are in the church who are not necessarily of the church, those who profess faith in Christ without possessing the Christ of faith. Uh, In other words, those who come in name only but not in truth. So an example of this would be uh, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. He professed his faith in Jesus Christ and his repentance. Peter, having no reason to doubt him, baptized him and brought him into the church by his baptism. But then later on, he shows his corrupt heart and his lack of repentance and basically is cast out uh, from the church with the uh, uh, leaving Peter with a request to pray for him that he might be turned from his wickedness and, and brought back to the Lord. So here is a man who was in the church for a short time, but not of the church. Judas Iscariot would fit this as well. Now, going back to your question about Noah, um, what you have there is the Lord carrying out his promise of saving the seed of the woman and separating the seed of the woman from the seed of the serpent, the godly seed, the church, versus the world, which ultimately will culminate in Christ versus Satan as well. There is uh, Christ as the head of the seed, so you have the seed capital, the seed uh, uh, lowercase, and they're united together. So what Christ will do, he will do for his church, and he will undo the ruin that Satan has brought on the human race, and he will uh, crush Satan under his feet, even while his uh, uh, feet are bruised and the serpent's head is crushed, and he'll bring victory for his people, for his church. Well, in the meantime, this doesn't simply explain what Jesus is going to do on the cross. It also explains the flow of human history, and these two groups are divided into the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. What, What we get with the flood is Noah and his family are all that's left of the seed of the woman, and the rest of the world is the seed of the serpent and is wiped out. But what we see after the flood is that even among uh, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, we see basically um, the division of the seeds again. So all who went into the ark were part of the visible church and under the administration of the covenant of grace at the time. But not all who were in the church were of the church, because Ham and then Canaan proved to be apostate and were cut off. So this distinction between the visible and invisible church is tied together with the revelation of God's covenant with his people. The covenant has internal and external aspects, essence and administration, if you will, as some have said, and so does the church. And it mirrors the covenant, or as some have said, the covenant is the charter of the church. And I think that's where you see Noah and his family being uh, brought into the ark. And yet, not all who are in the church are of the church. And this theme goes right through the entire Bible. That memorable line is so helpful, because so many of us know that phrase, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And, and we're not called to retreat out into, into desert places and into monasteries and, and be hermits for the, for the rest of our days in this world. We are in it, but we are not of it. We are not worldlings. We're not 
called we're not we're called out of that lifestyle and and out of that uh, we're regenerated out of that called out of darkness into his marvelous light and on the flip side there are some who are in the church but not of the church and so if you need a helpful mnemonic device or just a helpful phrase to remember that distinction between visible and invisible church that is so important not in just for confessional theology but for biblical theology and understanding of of the church you can just remember that line well some are in the church but not of it they're in it because they're visible Oh, they're part of the visible church, but they're not of it because they're not part of the invisible church. And a couple of easy texts to think about there would be, uh, again, Acts 8, Simon the sorcerer was in the church, but not of the church. We know he was in the church because he was baptized. We know he was not of it because of Peter's rebuke when his sin comes out. It wasn't visible at the beginning, but it became visible later. Uh, John says something almost exactly like this in 1 John 2 when he's dealing with a question of apostasy or people abandoning Christ and abandoning the church, and he says those who went out from us were never truly of us. Well, they were among us. They were in the church, and we did count them as brothers, maybe even teachers. And yet they went out that it might be manifest that none of them were truly of us. So uh, you can't. that's why I said this distinction is important pastorally, because uh, what John is doing there is he's not only encouraging those who remain to persevere through faith in Christ confidently knowing that the Spirit uh, will enable them to persevere as their teacher, as the one who enables them to cling to Christ, Um, but also uh, when they think about those who went out, rather than simply saying, uh, well, if they fell away, maybe I can fall away too, he explains they were not truly of us. They professed faith in Christ, but they didn't possess the Christ of faith. And so they went out, they showed that they were not of us, but he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, your faith. So all of those things build on these principles too. This is uh, spoken from, and the book is written by a man who's not merely in the books, though he is certainly in the books, and you see that on every page. But if you pay attention to his introductory remarks, um, Ryan has again and again in his life seen not just friends and not just students or members of the church fall away from the faith and go out from um, being among us, but he has had um, mentors, pastors, even the man who baptized you, uh, right, apostatized. Discipled me and led me to Christ, yeah. When Ryan talks about the pastoral concerns of this doctrine, uh, he's speaking from the heart to the heart, and and I, I hope that any of you who do take up this book and read, um, realize that and recognize the, the great um, pastoral importance of these doctrines, because when people leave, other people are going to ask questions, and can't say, oh, well, they're going somewhere else. <laughs> you know, you, you have to really dig in with it for them, and uh, it's an instructive moment and opportunity as well to build up brothers in the faith, even as even as um, we, we, we're saddened and sorrowed at the evidence of lack of faith um, in certain others. Ryan, you say that the visible church is ordinarily necessary in two ways. So we've talked about that visible church. What are those two ways that you talk about? This is the quiz to see whether I can remember my own book. Um, The two ways would be the uh, necessity of means and necessity of precept. And uh, I'm borrowing that phrase from Turretin, who also borrowed it from about a hundred other people. Um, But uh, it's a common way of making this kind of, of distinction. So what we're getting at is something like this, that uh, ordinarily... 
there's a necessity of means in the visible church. And let me just give one example. Uh, think about what Paul says in Romans 10. Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Well, that's the end of a, of, of a chain of reasoning. Well, he basically says, how can we believe him, that is Jesus Christ, whom we have not heard, and how shall we hear Jesus Christ without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? And then he quotes the Old Testament, then concludes, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Well, what he envisions there is, is not simply someone sitting at home, opening a Bible and reading it, and suddenly the Spirit changes their heart and they're born again. Can that happen? Yes. Does it happen? Yes. But what Paul is saying is God's ordinary way of calling people to Christ is through ordained preachers who have been sent both by God and by the church. And I'm, I'm summarizing there what I think his argument is, and you'd have to go to the book of Acts to really flesh it out and see how it, it comes to play in practice. But there's a church in the background here from which preachers are sent and ordained uh, from God ultimately, but through the church. And it is through the preaching of the word that people are coming to Christ. So if you look at these statements on the church, say in the Westminster Larger Catechism, and they deal with the necessity of the visible church, most of these aspects center around the means of grace. If you look at Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon after the Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, um, 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. It's interesting that it says added to the church doesn't say 3,000 individuals went home to read their Bibles and pray in their closets. But 3,000 souls were added to the church. Well, then some people say, see, it says souls, not bodies. So these people were really born again. And that's really the criteria we're going after. Well, actually, the term soul there often just means individual or person. And here's the big question. How do we know that 3,000 souls were added to the church that day? Well, because Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and 3,000 people were baptized and brought into the visible church. Does this mean that none of them ever proved to be hypocrites? No. There were some there, undoubtedly, that were still in the church, but not of the church. But we see this, this pattern coming out with preaching, with baptism in that case. These are genuine means to bring us to Jesus Christ. I like to say that baptism itself, for example, uh, makes a poor Savior. But baptism is a great means to bring us to the Savior because it teaches us that we, our sins must be washed away with the blood of Christ, and apart from Jesus Christ, there's no hope. And that's where baptism not only joins us to all others who are baptized and in the visible church and clinging to Jesus Christ, but it also directs us to Christ as the object of our faith. Baptism by itself makes for a poor savior, but as a means, uh, but it, it's a great means for bringing us to the savior. So mm -hmm. That's quotable. You might see that appear on GPTS media in some form in the future with Ryan's name attached to it. An illustration I like to think of when I'm thinking about the, the means of grace, particularly preaching, is uh, can, if my son asked me while we're passing by a train, hey, daddy, why is that train on the tracks? Can it go on the road? Um, I might answer him and say, a train might be able to 
make some headway on a particular road, especially if it's moving and so it's coming off of rails and going onto a road, might make a, a few meters or whatever. But um, but it's designed to go on a railroad, and likewise. Um, there are extraordinary circumstances where men are saved uh, even outside of those ordinary means, and God uh, do, accomplishes salvation for his own glory even above and beyond means. But ordinarily, he does it through means, and the vast majority of the saints that will enter the church triumphant and that we will be worshiping alongside of for all eternity will have gotten there through the ordinary means that Christ established in his church, preaching prayer, sacraments. What you're trying to say is we're going off the rails. Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, though, and when you look, like you said earlier, what has happened in the modern church? What has brought us to the point where we can be content with someone who says, I'm a believer, but I don't go to church, or I'm a believer, but I'm not a member of a church. You know, it's just a me and Jesus kind of thing. I'm right. a Lone Ranger right. Christian. I mean, certainly there are there are times. I was just speaking with a man who's a member of your church, actually, who for the last couple of years, now that he's retired, has spent a significant amount of time uh, traveling, going on the Appalachian Trail, going on uh, different pilgrimage routes in Europe, not for. Sp- spiritual enlightenment, but to see the world and to revel in, in, in the glory of God, even in creation and in human society, and different, see different things now that he's retired. And that's, that's okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, he doesn't have a family at home that he has to tend to. Um, but when he's back home in Greenville, even when he's abroad, he makes it a point to always be in the church with God's people on the Lord's Day, worshiping God. He doesn't see his faith as a solo act. At least that's the impression I got from him and meeting him this past weekend. And so, you know, for us, what what has happened to bring the church to the point where we we seem content with the the Lone Ranger Christian who it's, you know, it's it's the Bible, a cup of coffee or tea in the morning and, and Jesus and me and that's it. Right. And, and and there's no there's no role for the church in a Christian life. That makes no sense. Right. And I, I'm not willing to put the blame on the parachurch for that or publishing houses that aren't tethered to denominations or anything like that. You know, I really think it's due to a a poor lack of instruction in the church of Christians so that when men and women are converted and even raised in the church, they're never uh, pressed with the fact that the church is not just the place where you might be initially saved, but it's the place where you're going to grow. So whether you were initially saved in that context or not, that's where you go for nourishment, sustenance, and to be connected to Christ and his people. Yeah, and I, I think we underestimate how much sin has actually turned us upside down and uh, some of the effects of that still come into the Christian life for many people. Um, I'm reminded in this context of James Bannerman, who said that a solitary Christian is worse than a contradiction. And if you want to put that positively, as I often do, you could turn that around and say, uh, we should be very thankful that we're not called to live the Christian life alone. In other words, we're not just saved as individuals. We must be born again as individuals. We must know Christ for ourselves, but we're saved as the people of God. And ultimately, it's, it's not only a, a duty, but a privilege to come together and, and serve the Lord. In heaven, there's no examples in the Bible of simply private worship. And I don't say that to undermine private worship at all, but ultimately the goal is there's more joy in gathering together as the people of God 
to worship the Lord as the church than there is simply as an individual. Uh, you know, as, as David Clarkson, the Puritan, once said, that uh, live coals, if they're left separate, will go out. But if you put them together, they fan into a flame. And so it is with the Christian life, and so it is with the church. And, and my point with sin at the beginning is this, that I think the way we are, are made, ultimately, is to seek first the glory of God, and then the good of others, and then ourselves. And what sin has done to us is we seek first ourselves, and then others, and then if there's room left, God. And what happens is, this is where, say, even in a, a non-Christian environment, um, if there's any such thing as good or evil or right or wrong, it's always defined almost exclusively in terms of how I treat other people. And if God helps me treat other people better, then that's good. But if I can treat other people well without a God at all, that's fine too. And you see what's going on. It's me, then others, then if there's room left, then God. What the Holy Spirit is doing in us through Jesus Christ is he's putting God back on the throne in our hearts and putting him at the heart and center and then others and then ourselves last. And the Christian life is a life of self-denial. And I think sometimes the sad reality is that in the church, we still carry this attitude of it's all about me. If the church has something to offer me, or the church can allow me to use my gifts in some particular way, then I like the church and I want to use the church. But if the church doesn't recognize my own self-opinion of my gifts and how I think I should serve, then too bad for the church, I don't need those people. And I think that that type of attitude, which is so common, really just, just strikes at the heart of this issue of how sin makes us think about things backwards and the Bible helps us start thinking correctly again. And it puts those relationships uh, back in order. I, I hate to just keep giving too many examples, but you know, the example I always think of here is somebody goes to a church and says, I really need to serve as an elder. And I have these gifts and the church needs to recognize me. And if the church doesn't agree and they don't give me a place to serve and put me in an office, then too bad I'm gone. And I go somewhere else. You know, what I often say is uh, the people who are already serving, doing hospitality, calling the sick, visiting people in hospitals, uh, discipling younger Christians, and never seeking office and never seeking any reward in return are the people that we should be electing as our officers. Not the people saying, unless I use my gifts, I can't serve in an office. That's just an illustration of this, and I think it's part of the big picture. Why do people neglect the visible church? Because in our minds, it's still all about us. And it's not about the glory of God, whatever else we say. And it's not about the good of God's people. It's all about me. I think in our circles, um, we're guilty of thinking in terms of what's best for our children. I mean, this is particularly sensitive for my wife and for me because our kids are so young and so, so much of our energy and time and, and just thought is, is concerned with you know, how do we just take care of them? And, and you know, we've seen in churches, scores of churches, dozens of churches, people who leave and there's no animosity, there's no ill will, but you dig into it a little bit if your church does exit interviews formally or informally, just pastoral call or visit or just friends talking to one another, you know, wh why do you leave? Well, you know, at the end of the day, my son just wasn't making friends, you know, and, and I think that 
you know, he has some particular challenges, and it'll be best for him if we go to this other church where, not that there's a flashy youth group or anything, but there's just a different group of kids. Maybe he'll make a friend there. And the question that we're left with is, what of the glory of God? You know, going to another mm. church, not, there's nothing inherently wrong with doing that, you know, but what is at heart and at root, at base, the motivation, or or even more common, you know, you know, my, my children are being influenced by the kids in this church uh, for ill, whether it's true or not, and, uh, and so you pull them out of youth group or whatever, or just the social gatherings of the youth. If you don't have a formal youth group, that's okay. And then uh, the next step is, well, well we're, we're kind of afraid that they're going to have any contact with them, so we're going to take them to another church. You know, well, if, if you're trying to save your kids all the time, and that's your motivation, sure. and it's not the glory of Christ— it's not bringing your children to Christ, but just saving them from whatever other influence out there. Right. You're going to end up losing not only your kids, but also your Christ. Um, and so that's those are sensitive issues even in our circles, I think, where we have more of a covenantal emphasis and mm-hmm. we're concerned maybe not as much for ourselves as individuals, but for our households as families or whatever, and you still get out yeah. of kilter. And I, I should say with that example, um, the positive is that people are still looking at the church. I also want to add that the questions that you've listed there are legitimate questions. And uh, we do have to wrestle with issues uh, such as, on the one hand, um, there may be other people in the lives of my children that are bad influences on them and have crossed the line, and it would not be helpful to continue in that particular setting. On the other hand, um, there are uh, there there is the fact that no matter where you go, no matter what situation you're in, there are going to be so-called bad influences from people where perhaps you wouldn't expect those influences to be there. So the line is, you know, how how far do I go there in terms of just taking the approach that I'm teaching my kids to grow up as Christian people, trusting in the Lord, fighting temptation, and learning to deal with real people in real life. And then on the other side, um, there may be certain things that that go too far. And I'm trying to be a little bit vague there on purpose because I don't want to give a cookie-cutter answer for every circumstance. It takes wisdom and interaction with with others to figure this stuff out. We don't do this on our own. And one thing I should say there, too, and maybe this shows where our hearts are, um, are the elders of the church the first people we go to or the last people we go to? Um, if they're the last, we're usually informing them of a decision we've already made, in which case we've elevated ourselves above the church and its officers. If they're the first, then we're respecting the institution God put in place and the officers, and that doesn't mean we're always going to agree in every case either. Um, and good officers are not going to force you into their mold uh, in every case because you simply disagree on some point, but are we respecting the church in the way we make those kind of decisions? I do think most of the time we do need to communicate uh, to our families that, well, all the time we need to communicate that the glory of God and His worship come first. Does that always mean that somebody can't move from one church to another? Not necessarily. Um, there are other circumstances, uh, say, well, where where marriages are falling apart and there are extenuating circumstances where they need a fresh start, and there are other good options and are other good churches where they can get the shepherding they need. 
Um, and there may be reasons why they, they can't get that kind of help in, in their present situation anymore, and it's still a sound church. So there are things that come up like that. But, um, but I think the goal is, do we value the church as the Lord values the church? Are we committed uh, to her? And, and the thing to add that's practical there is sometimes people will say, well, I'm a member of the invisible church, and that's where my true membership lies, so that's where my vows lie too. Well, you actually took a vow, in, in our case, to support the worship and work of this local church to the best of your ability. And uh, one thing people don't think about there is it's not only a matter of me and my family and what am I teaching my children? Are they learning to worship God or worship themselves and be idolaters? Um, but what about the other people? Most people that leave churches for uh, paltry reasons basically don't stop to think how much this affects everyone else that they're in fellowship with and everyone else they're vested in. And sometimes that's the issue that really puts a finger on the sore spot of our own selfishness. You know, that it's all become about us and not about the church, not about others. And, and ultimately, whatever we say, in those cases, not about the glory of God. We've covered a lot of practical ground so far in the interview, and in the time remaining, I want to go over just a couple more statements in your book and unpack them, um, not just as a motivation for folks to pick up the book, but because I think they're really helpful for thinking through doctrinal issues of ecclesiology that will obviously and always necessarily have practical import and, uh, and, and application. So you do your main argument in the book, I want to get this out there, is I argue ultimately that the visible church is ordinarily necessary for salvation because Christ is necessary for salvation, and Christ chose to call his people to himself through the church. So remember, whenever we're talking about um, God in a Christian context, we're always talking about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so Christ is at the heart of it as our mediator, as our redeemer of the elect, and as the head of the church. So um, you lay out the biblical uh, data for us, you, you bring Scripture to bear in showing how the Old Testament implies the existence of, a, of an invisible aspect of the church, as well as the very clear visible aspect in the, in the nation of Israel, and then the New Testament comes in and shines a light on, on, on really what that looks like explicitly, and then historically, we have the doctrine developing over centuries. So that's in the book. Again, I commend that to our listeners. But here is a statement I want to dig into a little bit. You say, admission of adults to the church visible is not based on perceived regeneration of those receiving baptism, but on a credible profession of faith in Christ and obedience to him. And here you're striking at, I think, the heart of, uh, of a doctrinal disagreement that has very important outworkings uh, between Pres Reformed Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists, and that is, what is the criteria for admission to the Church? And you say it's not perceived regeneration, but it is credible profession of faith. My question is, what's the distinction between perception and credibility? What, how do we distinguish between perceiving someone's regeneration and receiving a profession of faith is credible. Yeah, and, and notice the qualifier that I've given there is, is with adults. Uh, one, one thing that stands in the background here is uh, in Scripture, you cannot develop a doctrine of the Church without also developing a doctrine of the sacraments. Uh, the two go hand in hand. And so in this book in particular, because of that, in searching the Old Testament, as, as you mentioned a moment ago, 
most of the texts that I go to have to deal with circumcision and the nature of the covenant. Um, and likewise, going to the New Testament, many of the statements relate to baptism um, and, and tie to those things. Uh, the short answer is I think that both sacraments were the means of, uh, were and are, uh, baptism was, I mean, circumcision was, baptism still is, the means of solemn admission to the visible church. Um, and, and what you see uh, throughout the Old Testament, for example, is uh, the grounds of circumcision uh, related to belonging to the administration of the covenant of grace. The grounds of baptism or admitting someone to baptism is uh, relating to the administration of the covenant of grace. Uh, so this is where Bannerman, I think, goes off the rails a little bit since we mentioned that earlier in terms of uh, uh, his treatment of, say, infant baptism, because he says there's one criteria for adults to be baptized and another criteria for children. For adults, we have a credible profession of faith, which is going to pull us to your question. For children, we have belonging to believing uh, parents, one or more. Um, I think he's wrong on that point and out of accord with the broader Reformed tradition. The single criteria for admitting people to circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New is membership in the covenant of grace, the administration of the covenant of grace. And let me illustrate that in a couple of ways that will bring me to a credible profession versus perceived regeneration. Uh, why was Ishmael circumcised in the Old Testament? Because at that time, as a child of Abraham, he belonged to the external administration of the covenant of grace. And later on was cut out and God gave him separate promises in a separate direction. Um, but as Abraham's seed, Isaac and Ishmael were circumcised and solemnly admitted to the visible church. One was circumcised in heart and flesh. The other was circumcised in flesh, not heart. And so there's this external uh, membership. Both ought to be circumcised in heart. And this is why in Jeremiah 4, uh, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 32, and a host of other passages, uh, Jeremiah 9 as well, the Lord rebukes Israel for being circumcised in flesh and not in heart, and tells them to get a new heart, and tells them by way of promise, God will circumcise their hearts and the hearts of their children. This is why Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Circumcision always taught it, and that was the core meaning of the circumcision, as well as a host of other Old Testament promises. So people were solemnly admitted to the visible church by circumcision, but not all who were circumcised in flesh were circumcised in heart. Not all who were in the church were of the church. So by the way, when Paul says uh, in Romans 2, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly in the flesh, but one inwardly. True circumcision is not that which is outward in the flesh, but in the heart. He's teaching an Old Testament doctrine, not simply a New Testament one. That's what circumcision meant, and that's now what baptism means as well. So now, fast forward a bit. Uh, Peter baptized Simon the sorcerer because he had a credible or believable profession of faith in Christ. In other words, he professed faith in Jesus Christ. Peter had no reason to doubt him. 
But Peter could not peer into the depths of his soul and see the Holy Spirit dwelling there and couldn't see whether this man was truly born again. He baptized him on the grounds of a credible profession of faith by which Peter knew he was in the administration of the covenant of grace and ought to be admitted to the church by baptism. If the criteria for baptism is perceived regeneration or presumed regeneration, Peter would have sinned by baptizing Simon the sorcerer. If the criteria is credible profession of faith, Peter would have sinned by failing to baptize him. In other words, he was obligated to baptize someone upon credible profession of faith, though he proved later to be unregenerate. So this man was in the church, not of the church. He was baptized in his flesh, but his sins were not washed away by Christ, much like um, Ishmael was circumcised in flesh, but not in heart. Israel was circumcised in flesh, not in heart. And you see the same pattern uh, coming into the New Testament. And, uh, and again, I could add text after text after text after text here. Uh, but again, what does God say to Abraham? Uh, Walk before me and be blameless. I'll be your God, the God of your children after you. And then he also says the stranger in your midst is to be circumcised and, and brought into the community and not brought to the Passover until they come through circumcision. Uh, what does Peter say in Acts 2 in the day of Pentecost? Uh, Repent and be baptized. Walk before me and be blameless and be circumcised. For the promise is to you and to your children. I'll be your God and the God of your children after you. And to as many as are far off whom the Lord our God will call, and to the stranger in your midst who comes in. And so there's a continuity then in the sacraments. Baptism clearly has replaced circumcision, and uh, believing households were circumcised, now believing households are baptized and brought into the visible church. But all those children who are baptized must believe in Christ for themselves. They must be born again. And by laying hold of God's promises, we hope that God will circumcise their hearts, that he will bring them to Jesus Christ, that he will do what we can't do for them. But the baptism is not saving them, but it's directing them to the Savior. You write on page 83, and this is where the title for the book comes from, uh, you write, The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. She cannot save us, but salvation lies within her walls. She is the ark of safety in a world that is drowning under God's wrath. Should we not value her and love her as Christ loved her and gave himself for her? And isn't that the call to action that you have in the third part of your book here, the, the application section of the book, which is the shortest, but you say most important part, and that is a call to Christians to cast off this individualistic Christianity that's more, grosser than a contradiction and to adopt a posture of love and affection and even desire for the Church of Christ. Yeah, and actually the title for the book uh, comes ultimately from my friend Shane Anderson, and uh, <laughs> not just that page, because Shane recommended the the title and, and one out among some others. Uh, so there you go, you get credit, brother. But um, uh, I, I think in even hearing you reread to me the, the statement that I wrote, um, I can't help but think through First Peter chapter 3, 
um, because there the idea of Noah and the ark and baptism and the perishing world and everything I've been talking about all sort of converge. And basically what Peter is doing there is he's encouraging Christians who are suffering persecution under uh, a hostile world and an environment that rejects Christ and mistreats Christians to look to the Lord's faithfulness and his ability to protect them, preserve them, and ultimately redeem them. And he appeals to Noah and the ark. Uh, Noah preached the gospel, and the people who rejected the gospel are now, he says, spirits in prison. Now they've they basically they've gone to hell and they're they're suffering the wrath of God and under His punishment because they rejected the preaching of Noah, and what He's basically saying is if they reject you, um, God knows how to deal with them and God knows how to save you, and uh, the ark then uh, was the means by which Noah and his family were saved from the wrath to come. The ark was not only a testimony to God saving Noah, but a testimony against the unbelieving world. And basically, you have the idea of the family, uh, the church, the sacraments, all the other things that I've been talking about converging in the one text. And this goes back to the idea that ordinarily the church itself is like this ark of safety. It is in the church, God administers His grace, it is through the church the Lord calls us by His grace, and it is to the church and in fellowship with the church the Lord calls us in His grace. And ordinarily, this is where He saves sinners from their sins and brings us safely to glory. When I keep saying ordinarily, um, you know, the, the obvious example being outside of this would be the thief on the cross, uh, who heard the gospel from Jesus believed in Jesus and went to heaven or paradise, but was not baptized, was not brought uh, into the visible church. But that's exceptional and not normal. Um, another potential exception is the Ethiopian man whom uh, Philip meets on the road in Acts chapter 8, uh, because he's going back to Ethiopia and there really is no visible church for him to go to. But it's interesting, isn't it, before he goes back... This is one of the only examples in the entire New Testament where baptism is not administered corporately among other Christians. And the presumption seems to be that you're going to a place where there is no church. Baptism is so important as a mark of solemn admission to the visible church, it must be done now on the side of the road before you go back. You know, otherwise, couldn't he just say, well, I believe in Jesus and that's good enough? What's the purpose of the baptism? other than the fact that it's an outward sign of the washing away of his sins, a seal by the Holy Spirit of the reality, but also a joining to Christ and Christ's people, and all who are united to Christ. That's the function of baptism uh, throughout the book of Acts, and that's why the Ethiopian, even when he can't join the church, still sort of does uh, by his baptism. You have this to say towards the end of the book, when you're talking about the importance of, of membership in the invisible church and the visible church, um, in both aspects of the church, engaging in both aspects of the church. You write, we must neither be content with membership in the visible church without saving union with Christ, nor profess that we are members of the invisible church and have no need for the visible church. We must be partakers of the whole Christ, and, if at all possible, be so in the context of the whole church. 
Can you unpack that for us a little bit? I mostly just want to get it out there because it's such a yeah. great line, but unpack it for us a little bit, what you mean by the whole Christ and the parallel with the whole church. Yeah, and, and by the whole Christ, maybe the first thing that I should say there is I'm not, uh, not quoting Ferguson, at least not on purpose. I think I'm one of the only people that I know that hasn't read his book, The Whole Christ, uh, and I need to. You know the title, though, so you so, should have you should have uh, footnoted him on this. <laughs> yes. Well, I can I can say uh, what I mean, and uh, based on what I've heard from him, I assume he would agree too. But um, the the whole Christ means that we need uh, Jesus in his entirety to be our Savior, uh, not just simply looking at him to forgive our sins. Uh, but but everything about Jesus Christ, who he is and all that he has done, we need all of it for our salvation. Uh, unless we have someone who is fully God, there is no one worthy to represent us before God or to be a worthy sacrifice uh, on our behalf. But unless he's fully man, then he can't offer the sacrifice at all and can't stand as the second Adam in our place. Uh, Jesus was born of the spirit that we might be, born of the Spirit, not for his regeneration, for his conception, but then for our regeneration. Jesus obeyed the law of God that uh, God would count us righteous as having obeyed the law of God. Jesus suffered throughout his life to sanctify all of our sufferings to us for our, our growth and grace. Uh, he bore the wrath and curse of God on the cross that we might, might not bear it in eternity. He rose from the dead that we might be alive in him and that we might walk in newness of life now and have eternal life forever, which has begun now. Uh, he went to heaven to prepare a place for us in heaven. And literally everything Jesus is, everything Jesus did from beginning to end and including his intercession for us now is done for us. And we need to trust in Jesus Christ for our justification, forgiving our sins and counting us righteous in his sight, but we also need to trust in Jesus Christ for our sanctification, for our adoption, for our perseverance, ultimately for our glorification and entering into God's presence and bearing his image perfectly. So we need the whole Christ. But we hear about this whole Christ, we receive this Christ in and through his church in most cases. Um, to them are committed the keys of the kingdom of heaven, by which the kingdom is open and shut. The church is called the pillar and ground of the truth, uh, and a number of other things in Scripture that would point to the importance of the church. And it's really in and through the church we meet Jesus. So the church is not the Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior, but the church, uh, as it were, becomes like the friend of the bridegroom to invite us into the presence of the bridegroom and to bring us uh, to know him. Now, the other side of the whole church is that the church uh, is one holy Catholic and apostolic. It's apostolic because it's founded on the prophets and apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Um, it's one because we are united in Jesus Christ uh, in our common profession of him and the common covenant and in the invisible church, our common union with Christ. It's holy because the church is set apart uh, to God, but this phrase actually points to his Catholicity. So we can't say, well, I'm part of the invisible church and it doesn't matter whether I'm co connected to a local church or not. But we must say this, through joining a local church, I'm part of the Catholic church and I'm part of the broader visible church of Christ. And that has a number of, of implications. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. 
We don't have baptism for First OPC Sunnyvale or uh, Covenant Community OPC Greenville or Taylor's. Uh, we have one baptism with all Christians across denominations that uh, admits us to the visible church, and fundamentally your baptism there is your membership card. Uh, then we join ourselves to local churches, and it's through the local church we express our membership in the Catholic Church. Uh, so we need the whole Christ. We also need the whole church. And, uh, and one way this plays itself out in terms of the whole church is uh, when we're together joining our hearts at our prayer meetings. We're not just praying for this local OPC or all OPCs or PCAs or URCs or whatever. We're praying for the whole Church of Jesus Christ on earth in every place, and we're genuinely working together in spreading the gospel in ways that perhaps we can't do in other scenarios. But we, it's a reminder that we're in this together. And that's important to, to bring to bear in this conversation because we are so prone to sectarian attitudes and approaches, and I know I myself am. And, and the positive side of that is uh, it's, it's generally born out of a sincere love and loyalty and affection for that denomination or, or local church that you're a part of, but the negative part of it is that you got blinders on and you're not seeing what Christ is doing all around the world and even just all around your neighborhood through many churches that are heralding, heralding forth the yeah. gospel of Jesus Christ. So though I attend a local PCA church here in, well, in Simpsonville, I rejoice in what the Lord is doing at the Covenant Community OPC, and I rejoice in what he's doing at ARP and BPC and Reformed Baptist and independent congregations all around the city of Greenville, and then even what he's doing in uh, Napark denominations and other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches all around the world, and I pray that our tribe will increase uh, for all of us. To that end, I want to close on um, what you close the book on, and part of it is Reading the last page of a book on air might seem like a faux pas when you're also trying to encourage folks to pick up a book and read, but this is so important, especially if there's a listener who is a podcast junkie, loves listening to podcasts, but is hesitant to really commit himself or herself to the church. And I don't know if we have any listening to Confessing Our Hope for this episode, (laughs) particularly this episode, of that mind or posture, but in case we do, I feel it incumbent upon me to read this. And this is from the last page of Ryan's book, page 113. We need the church as a means of knowing Christ, and we need the visible church as part of our obedience to him. Spurning the visible church in light of the clear teaching of Scripture says more about how we regard Christ, who founded the church and is united to her as his bride, than about how we regard the church herself. On the other hand, the church is the household of God, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. She is the Israel of God and the Jerusalem from above, who is the mother of us all. Should we not speak glorious things of this Zion, this city of our God? We should love the church since Christ loved her. We should expect to grow in God's family with our brothers and sisters. We should aim to persevere in faith and godliness under her ministry. We must recognize that ordinarily there is no possibility of salvation without her." And hopefully this was a nice um, exploration for our listeners in Westminster Confession of Faith 25.2, but more importantly, of God's Word, that this is a biblical doctrine expressed in confessional form, and um, hopefully we've demonstrated that today Ryan does so at greater length and in greater measure in the book. And so I recommend to you The Ark of Safety, Is There Salvation Outside of the Church, published by Reformation Heritage Books. Ryan, thank you for joining me today in the studio. Yep, thanks, Zach. 
You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.